We are in week four of our summer message series, Summer in the Psalms. Uh, For eight weeks during the months of June and July, we're spending some intentional time as a church family, uh, reading through and applying the important truths from the book of Psalms. Now remember, Psalms is divided into five books, with each book reflecting one of the first five books in the Bible. This summer, we're taking a closer look at a handful of Psalms in the first book, which is Psalms 1 through 41. And then we're reading through the entire book on our own time. We have this devotional reading guide that we're going through as a church. And if you will uh, dedicate time to read five psalms per week, uh, then you'll have read through the first 41 psalms by the time we get to the end of our series. So I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, Partner with the rest of your church family, and let's read through this first book together. You know, we don't study the book of Psalms in the same way that we might study another book in the Bible, say one of uh, Paul's letters to the various churches or, or a book of history. The Psalms are meant to be read devotionally. They're, they're meant to be prayed during difficult seasons, and they're meant to be sung by the church as we worship God for who he is. We, we've said that as a devotional book or a devotional guide, the Psalms are just that. They're, they're a guide helping us to connect with our Heavenly Father, shaping how we relate to God, and helping us learn what it looks like to live the kind of life that's blessed by God. As a book of prayers, we're given a front row seat to the raw emotion expressed by individuals who cried out to God during extremely difficult seasons, as well as seasons of prosperity. And then as a book of songs or or a book of praises, the church is able to use the Psalms as we worship God for who he is. We learn more about his character and nature in the Psalms. We learn more about who we are created to be as children of God. Now, even though David, uh, King David, is the most prominent author throughout the Psalms, especially in this first book of Psalms, there's still a long list of subjects and themes that are covered in these first 41 Psalms. In your own personal reading and then throughout the messages uh, thus far, we've already seen a lot of these themes show up. We've seen Psalms of distress, Psalms of judgment, Psalms of prayer and, and praise, Psalms about those who are blessed by God, Psalms about the wicked, and then we've seen Psalms that teach us about the attributes of God. Today we're going to look at Psalm 22. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Psalm 22. Um, But Psalm 22 is one psalm in a trilogy of psalms. So you have Psalm 22, 23, and 24. And all of these psalms are, are songs, prayers, and they're messianic psalms that point us to Jesus. These three psalms belong together, and they're known as the shepherd psalms. Uh, They're a reminder that when we read the psalms, we should always look for Jesus. Now, maybe you're thinking, how do we look for Jesus in the psalms? An Old Testament book that was written, um, much of it written about a thousand years before the time of Christ. How do we do that? Well, this is exactly what, what Jesus himself told us to do, that when we're reading the psalms, we should look for Jesus. In the New Testament book of Luke, chapter 24, uh, Jesus has this uh, pretty amazing encounter with two of his followers who were walking to the village of Emmaus, and this encounter happened on Resurrection Sunday. As they're walking, uh, they were talking about everything that had happened to Jesus. So these two guys are talking back and forth. They were talking about his trial, how he was beaten, crucified, and, and then buried. 
And as they're talking about these things, the resurrected Jesus uh, started to walk alongside them, but they didn't recognize him at first. Jesus asked them what they were talking about. And when he asked this question, one of the men, uh, his name is Cleopas or Cleopas, he stopped walking. So he stops in his tracks. He looks at Jesus with this extremely sad look on his face because he's, he's grieving. And this is what he said. He said, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened over the last few days. Now, they didn't recognize Jesus at this point. They're thinking, this is the only guy in Jerusalem that hasn't heard what has happened. And little do they know, they're talking to their resurrected Lord. The two men begin to describe uh, to Jesus who Jesus was and what he'd accomplished during his earthly ministry, how he had performed these amazing miracles and taught with great authority. And they actually said to Jesus, we had hoped that he was the Messiah who had come to rescue us. Now, while all of this is taking place, uh, some of the women who'd been at the tomb, they ran back to share the report that the tomb was empty. They told the other disciples that Jesus's body was missing and how they'd seen angels who told them that Jesus was alive. Some of the men who heard this, they ran to the tomb and sure enough, the tomb was empty. And then we read these words in Luke 24 verses 25 through 27. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus told these men that all of the scriptures talk about Jesus. All of the scriptures point to Jesus. And then later that evening, So some time passes later that evening. These two disciples, they finally recognize Jesus. They recognize who he is. So they run to Jerusalem. They meet up with the rest of the disciples and the other believers. And they shared how Jesus had risen from the dead. And while these two disciples were sharing their story of how Jesus had appeared to them, the Bible tells us that Jesus actually appeared to them again. He was standing among the people. And then in Luke 24... Verses 44 through 46, Jesus says something that greatly affects how we should read, uh, study, and apply the Psalms to our own lives. This is what we read. Then he said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. Luke 24 helps us understand and apply the truths that we're going to be talking about today in Psalm 22. In Luke 24, 27, Jesus explained to these early disciples that all of the scriptures talk about him. All of the scriptures point to him. Jesus verifies that the Old Testament is the word of God and that all of God's word points to Jesus. And then in Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus gets specific and he tells the disciples that everything written about the Messiah and the the law of Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible, Everything written about the Messiah throughout the prophets, which is most of the rest of the Old Testament. And then everything written about the Messiah in the Psalms would be fulfilled in Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. 
You know, I've had some great conversation with people over the years about uh, the importance of reading God's word and staying connected uh, to God through his word. I think if there's one aspect of the ministry that God has, has given me, one thing that I, I, I want to, to wear off on others and, and I want others to see, it's the importance of, of reading God's word and connecting to God through his word and, and living out God's word, being obedient to God's word. That I believe that's so important. Scripture uh, tells us that, and we, we see that in our own lives and, and in the church. It's so important. But as I have these conversations, I think it's always funny when someone says, you know, I'm more of a, a New Testament kind of person. Or another person might say, I'm really more of an Old Testament kind of person. Uh, my wife and I have had these conversations many times. Um, to be honest, you know, I, I'm more of a New Testament kind of person. I just enjoy reading and teaching from the New Testament more. Um, she's more of an Old Testament person. She loves the history and the stories, and she really gets into that. Um, but I don't know that either of those are the right approach. You know, Jesus is saying, um, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're in Christ, you should be a Bible kind of person because all of God's word points to Jesus. Um, so if you're a follower of Jesus, the Old Testament is worth reading and meditating on and applying because Jesus vouched for the Old Testament. Even if it's hard to read in certain places, and it certainly is, there, there's some things in the Old Testament that uh, personally, I wish weren't weren't there, or or some things that I just really have a hard time wrapping my head around. Even if it's hard to read in certain places, it's going to help you grow in your faith and in your relationship with God. So Jesus told us to look for Him in the Psalms, and that's one of the reasons that we're reading through this first book in the Psalms this summer. You know, we we don't want to just learn about Jesus. You know, we we should certainly do that, but we want to learn from Jesus to live like Jesus. We want to learn from Jesus what it means to develop a prayer life and, and to grow in our relationship with God and to, uh, to serve others, to be compassionate, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We want to live like Christ. And that, that's what being a disciple is all about, learning from Jesus to live like Jesus. So with this as an introduction, I want to invite you again, turn your Bibles to Psalm 22, 23, and 24. Uh, these three Psalms are a trilogy of Psalms that are called the Shepherd Psalms. Uh, they're called the Shepherd Psalms because each Psalm talks about the role of Jesus as our shepherd. Now, in the Shepherd Psalms, uh, we see Jesus as the good shepherd. That's Psalm 22. We see Jesus as the great shepherd. That's Psalm 23. And we see Jesus as the chief shepherd. That's Psalm 24. Now, Psalm 22 is where we're going to see Jesus in the role of the good shepherd. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. But after the message today, I want to encourage you to read Psalm 23 and 24. But as the good shepherd, what we're going to see today, Jesus lays down his life for his sheep and he secures our salvation. Now, the New Testament verse where we get this phrase or the title, the good shepherd, is found in the book of John, chapter 10, verse 11. It says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for his sheep. So these are the words of Jesus. He's saying, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd sacrifices his life for his sheep. In this same passage, Jesus goes on to explain how a hired hand wouldn't lay down his, his own life for, his, for, for the sheep. Instead, a hired hand would abandon the sheep. He would do that at first sight, the first sight of trouble, because the sheep aren't his. A hired hand works only for the money. He doesn't really care about the sheep. But as the good shepherd, 
Jesus knows his sheep and his sheep know him. They recognize his voice. They go where he leads them to go. Psalm 22 is a picture of what the good shepherd is doing, laying down his life for the flock. So before we read from Psalm 22, you need to know that Psalm 22 is the clearest description of crucifixion that we see anywhere in the Bible. And this psalm uh, was written about a thousand years before crucifixion was even a method of execution, which is, which is pretty amazing. So as David is writing this psalm, he's actually not talking about crucifixion uh, as a method of execution. He's, he's singing and he's, he's praying to God about his own trials, struggles, and suffering. But this psalm is a messianic psalm. It's a prophetic psalm because it points to Jesus as the good shepherd and describes what he will do as the good shepherd. Let's start in Psalm 22, verse 1. Verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? So I wonder where you've heard these words before. My God, my God, why Have you forsaken me? Well, these are some of the first words of Jesus when he was on the cross. Maybe you'll recognize that. Now I want to draw your attention to the very last verse in Psalm 22. This is verse 31. So we read the first verse. Now I want to look at the very last verse. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Now the words he has done it is actually best translated in the Greek as it is finished. So where have you heard these words before? Well, these these are the last words that Jesus spoke on the cross. So from verse 1 to verse 31 in Psalm 22, we're given a description of what happened to Jesus when he was on the cross. We're given a picture of Jesus as the good shepherd, the, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Psalm 22 gives us many of the details about Jesus's crucifixion. And when Jesus said, it is finished, he's saying it's paid in full. It is finished was actually a Greek term that meant paid in full. It's a term that a merchant would use when writing on a bill of sale. So when Jesus said, it is finished, the it refers to his work on the cross, it's his sacrifice for our sins. You see, the mission of Jesus and the reason that he was, had been born had been accomplished in his work on the cross. Uh, we know, we've talked about this, that we're all sinners. The, and the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. Because of our sin, we deserve death. But Jesus took that punishment upon himself. He took that punishment for us. And now God has provided a way for us to be reconciled or made right with God through Christ. So Psalm 22 gives us a clear picture of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We also have to remember, um, David was talking about his own struggles and his own suffering. So out of his own suffering, he was crying out to God saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David was saying, God, what's going on in my life? Why aren't you answering me? Why aren't you working in my life? Don't you see the struggles, the the trials, the the suffering that I'm going through? David was experiencing the storms of life, and he desperately needed God's intervention. I think we say similar things when we're going through difficult seasons, when we're going through the storms of life. Maybe not in the same way. I don't think we say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we question where God is and we cry out to God to do something about our our pain and and suffering. 
It's not uncommon for us to respond to suffering like David responded to his own suffering. I want to briefly go through Psalm 22, just highlighting a few verses that describe Jesus's crucifixion and what we see in the New Testament. I believe that you're going to see how amazing this psalm really is as a messianic psalm that points us to Jesus as the good shepherd. So we already looked at verse 1. David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? And we know that these were some of the first words of Jesus on the cross. I want to draw your attention to verses 6 through 8 if you're following along in your own Bible. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. So the phrase, I am a worm and not a man, is actually what's known as a a forgotten I am statement that speaks of how little value the leaders of Israel and the Roman officials have placed on Jesus. And then verse seven says, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their, their heads. This is a picture of what we see in the new Testament. Jesus was mocked. He was insulted and and beaten when he was hanging on the cross. People were mocking him and telling him to, to prove that he really is the Messiah by crying out to God and and having God rescue him, pulling him down from the cross. Let's look at verse 12. Just the very first part of verse 12. It says, many bulls surround me. This is a representation or represents the Jewish religious leaders who surrounded Jesus and handed him over to be falsely accused and tried. Verse 14, it says, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. This is a reminder that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was poured out. In verse 15, my mouth is dried up like a pot shirt. A a pot shirt is dried up clay. There's no moisture left. It's like clay that's, that's cracking. If you were to drop it, it would just shatter. So he's saying my mouth is dried up like a pot shirt and my, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. So on the cross, remember Jesus at one point, he said, I'm thirsty. So the soldiers soaked a sponge in some sour wine. They put it on a hyssop branch and then they held it up to his lips. And this is referring to that, what would happen in that passage. Verse 16 It says, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and and my feet. This is a reference to the Roman soldiers who surrounded Jesus at the cross, at the crucifixion. The soldiers who pierced his hands and his feet on the cross. Verse 18 says, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Now, why would David write something like this? Now, he's, he's certainly describing what his enemies were doing to him, what he was experiencing, but he's also um, unknowingly foreshadowing what would happen to Jesus. We know that four Roman soldiers cast lots. They divided Jesus' clothes between the four of them. And then you jump down to verse 31, which we already read, but it says, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn that he has done it. So David ends this psalm by saying, it is finished. The work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, it means that The debt has been paid in full. We now have a way to be made right with God because of Jesus' work on the cross. So what's the the application for this psalm? I mean, David, if we look at his life, he he must have really been suffering. And we don't know 
all the details. We don't know exactly what season of his life that this psalm is referring to, but we do know he was in an extremely low place, a difficult situation and season. He was crying out to God from, from verse 1 where it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then throughout the rest of the psalm, he describes what this season of suffering was like. I think we can all relate to what David was saying to, to some extent. We've all gone through difficult seasons where, where we desperately needed the Lord. I think it'd be easy for us to look at this psalm and, and also think that you know, David had given up on God or that God had completely abandoned David, but really the opposite is true. The way that David was writing this, he, he wasn't saying, God, why have you given up on me? He was saying, God, I'm, I'm suffering. You, you know that I'm suffering. Things are bad, but I'm still going to trust in you. So in the first two verses, David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? I cry out by day, but, but you don't answer. But then listen to what David says in verses three and four. This is so key. He says, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out, and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. When David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not giving up on God, and he doesn't believe that God has abandoned him or given up on him. He's just saying, God, I need your help. I'm, I'm suffering, and I need you. But until you help, I'm going to keep trusting you. Even if you don't move this mountain it's in front of me. Even if you don't remove the suffering, I'm going to trust you. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said those words on the cross, but we also know that a little while later, he said these words, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Jesus trusted his heavenly father. David, through his example, he trusted his heavenly father. And for us as the church today, we have this awesome promise that God will go with us over the mountain. He'll, he'll go with us through the valley and he'll be with us in the storms of life. Even when it feels like he's not there, you know, we, we can't always rely on our feelings. Our, our feelings will fail us, but the promises of God won't. Even when it feels like he's not there, the message for us today is this, keep trusting in the Lord. In the New Testament book of 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says, um, So be truly glad. So this is kind of that, that attitude that we should have. It says, Be truly glad. There's wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. So we want that genuine kind of faith, and we're going to have gladness and be joyful even through those difficult seasons. And then it says, uh, it is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it'll bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. And then one of my favorite a couple of verses in Romans 5, 3 and 4, it says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Paul is, is giving us, and Peter is giving us, 
this awesome truth of how we should view suffering in our lives. You know, the world tells us that happiness is circumstantial. And it certainly is if you take a worldly approach. But the New Testament writers remind us that our joy, our, our gladness can be found in Christ. And these are things that the world can't take away. And that we should rejoice in those times of suffering because we know God is using that uh, for his glory and for our good. That, that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We know that our hope is in Jesus. The victory belongs to him. Suffering is never fun. Nobody likes to suffer. Um, but trials and, and suffering, the storms of life, are part of the refining process that makes us more like Christ. And we can respond to trials and suffering with, with confidence that God knows, plans, and directs our lives for the good. We can persevere with God's strength and, and through his leading in our lives. And we can have courage because the same Jesus who suffered for us has also promised to never leave or abandon us. The same Jesus who suffered for us has also promised to never leave or abandon us. So what's the application? Well, in the midst of your suffering today, in the midst of uh, maybe the storms of life that you're going through, I want to encourage you, cry out to God. Be honest with God in your prayers about what's going on, but do so with confident trust that God is with you and that he's working in the midst of your suffering. Jesus is the good shepherd. He, he is our good shepherd. And as the good shepherd, he lays down his life for his sheep. He secures our salvation. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of trials, cry out to God, but do so with confident trust that God is with you and that he's working in the midst of your suffering.